Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. This is Joan Nessel speaking on and for Radical Philosophy at 3CR. I can remember speaking early when I first arrived to Melbourne at a program called The Women's Shed, and that was my introduction to the wonders of community radio, which are more important in the world now than ever. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. Feminism isn't about making women stronger. Women are already strong enough. It's about changing the way the world perceives that strength. G.D. Anderson. Welcome to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. You are listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR. This is Carol Adams, author of The Sexual Politics of Peace. And I'm speaking to Dr. Natalie Jovanoski about digesting femininities. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. What motivated you to write Digesting Femininities? Well, it was actually from my very, very early research on eating disorders. I studied eating disorders initially. And I was particularly interested in how some of the social and cultural messages around women you know, from the media and things like that, can influence a woman's relationship with her own body and with the type of food that she chooses to eat or doesn't eat uh, in the case of eating disorders. And so from that interest, I started looking into things like sociocultural theory. I'm not sure if you've heard of sociocultural theory before, but it's just basically a psychological theory that looks at the way that society and culture can shape a person's behaviour. And a lot of this sort of information has been done on eating disorders and a lot of it's sort of been focused on what I call a body-centric approach. So really looking at the way that skinny models on the runway influence a woman's eating behaviour or digital airbrushing of magazine pictures, for example. And I was kind of surprised that there wasn't as much of this sort of information or wasn't as much of an analysis on food and the way that we discuss food in Western culture. And it seemed to me that there was this proliferation of food discourses out there. So, you know, diet books, cookbooks, it was all over the TV and that nobody was really applying this sociocultural lens looking at the way that food was framed or shaped for women. Yeah, so that's why I decided to write Digesting Femininities, to address that gap. You, you focus a lot on, the, on this concept of body policing in your book. Mm. Can you tell us about body policing and why it's relevant to the study in relation to food? Yeah, well, body policing was a really central concept 
in digesting femininities. A really simple way of describing what body policing is is the way that women are socialised to negatively scrutinise their bodies. So to put every single part of their body on the microscope and to figure out ways how to change their body so that they can suit some sort of cultural ideal. So body policing is just another way of saying self-objectification. So the psychological literature tends to call it self-objectification. And the concept of body policing really comes from those early feminist writings. From Andrea Dworkin, for example, is a really good example of someone who's written about objectification. And she talks about the way that women are treated as sex objects in culture and dehumanised in a variety of ways. And she talks about how the body stops being one's own body and becomes a public body that's scrutinised for its sexiness or beauty and things like that. And so basically I was interested in how women become divorced from their own bodies within a lot of cultural conversations about food and eating, which is why I use the term body policing, because I kind of thought that that was a really relevant term to use, and you know, in terms of how food is promoted to women as something that they shouldn't enjoy. Now, you talk a little bit about the way that food and gender are reinforced in diet books in the 21st century and how pseudo-feminist language is used to promote dieting. Well, I, I picked diet books as a discourse to study because they seemed like a really obvious discourse to study. I mean, feminists have had lots and lots of things to say about how destructive the diet industry is to women. And I was sort of interested in revisiting some of these arguments, but also looking at the way that the diet industry has really changed in the 21st century. I argue that it's been made a lot more palatable to women in the 21st century, precisely through the use of things like feminist terminology. So something that I noticed in my analysis of diet books, or diet books that have become popular in the 21st century, is this emphasis on terms like empowerment. And, you know, some of the cookbooks that I analyse, such as the Skinny Bitch Diet series, they use language that is used in, in shows like Sex and the City, for example, to appeal to women. So, you know, I, I just think that it's really interesting how the diet industry shapes itself according to social and cultural trends of the time and just how malleable it is in that way and how it's started using these terms that are typically associated with feminism, such as empowerment and things like that, and turning them into diet or weight loss messages. And I think this is just how pervasive the diet industry has become and just how incredibly sexist it's become as well. Yeah, cookbooks are becoming increasingly fashionable in contemporary Western culture. We don't really think of cookbooks as sources of body policing messages, but you argue that they are. So what are some of the ways that cookbooks reinforce gender narratives of body policing? Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's a really useful way to see cookbooks as gendered scripts. So when we pick up cookbooks, we see a lot of messages about the appropriate ways that women should behave in relation to food, I suppose. 
And I think that one of the clear messages that comes out of cookbooks is that food is used as a way to be kind to others and not necessarily as a way to nurture oneself. So there's lots and lots of messages in cookbooks about motherhood, but surprisingly something that I found in my analysis of contemporary cookbooks, and I looked at celebrity chefs and sort of celebrity cooks and the cult of the celebrity cook, and one of the things that I found was that one of the ways that they make themselves more appealing to women in the 21st century is by also inserting some sort of narratives of hedonism. So, you know, they'll talk about food being for other people, but then occasionally they'll also say, but every now and again, you can have a sneaky treat. And I found it interesting that that's the way that it was framed for women. So rather than enjoying food in a guilt-free way, there was always some sort of body conscious or body policing message that was in their writing. You know, it was never just about women indulging in food. It was always, you indulge in food, but there's a pinch of guilt there. There's never the same guilt expressed for feeding other people in your life. It was always in relation to the self. Yeah, I remember many years ago, they used to have television commercials saying, feed the man meat. And oh. I mean, they, they actually had quite a young boy there. He wasn't a man. Yeah. Uh, and there, there was, well, I remember at the time, there was a little bit of controversy around that. But look, just recently I've noticed the advertisements for Nutrigrain yeah. and it's Iron Man food. And I thought, well, even the advertising, I don't understand the rationality behind the advertising because they're sort of eliminating half the population. I mean, I, I can't see that a, yeah. a lot of female people would want to go and buy Iron Man food. Well, it's for the promotion of gender norms, which is a lot of what my book is about as well. So what that message is sending is very clear. It's uh, young boys deserve to be fed. And in fact, they should be fed a lot because they're growing and they've got these glowing bodies. We simply don't see those sort of messages aimed at a young female audience. It's almost as if that these messages don't apply to young women. And I think that has a lot to do with this sort of cultural idea that we have. And I think it's very implicit in a lot of people. I don't necessarily think that people are even conscious of it a lot of the time. But it's almost this, this message of women don't deserve to be nourished in the same way that men do. Yeah, that's right. Even a couple of weeks ago I was on holidays and a woman said to me she had a 14-year-old son and she said, oh, he needs extra portions because he's a growing boy. And I thought that's really interesting because I've never heard a, a man or a woman say, oh, my daughter needs extra proportions because she's a growing girl. No, no, we don't. And I kind of think that's... What needs to change, really? I mean, we need to see that, that young women are just as worthy of being nourished as well in our society. Something different that I've noticed in your book is that you also shine the spotlight on feminist discussions of food and eating, where you suggest that feminist literature has gone far enough in politicising women's relationships with food and eating. Tell us a little bit more about your thoughts on this topic. Yeah, actually, this was actually a really difficult chapter for me to write, to be honest because the texts that I criticise are actually the texts that lay the foundations 
of the feminist literature on food and eating as it currently stands. So I looked at Susie Orbach's Fat is a Feminist Issue and Naomi Wolf's The Beauty Myth. And these are two very seminal texts, feminist texts on food, eating, dieting and the body. And these, these are some books that I've, that I've read you know, as a young woman and they were very influential to me. But something that I noticed in these texts is that they only took the issue far enough. So the women were willing to politicise women's relationships with food and their bodies and they were very critical of industries such as the diet industry and the fashion industry and the beauty industries and things like that. But when they discussed the solution to these problems, they personalised the solution. So they often relied on the individual woman to change things about the way that she thinks or to even change the choices that she makes in her life. So I believe that even in, if I remember correctly, even in Naomi Wolf's Beauty Myth, the last chapter of her book talks about women making choices in the third wave, so choosing to wear a shade of lipstick that they like and things like that. And I think... You know, I think that that message only goes so far. I think that if you've identified the problem as a structural problem in society or as a patriarchal issue, then what you need to tackle is precisely that structure rather than making the individual woman change. So I guess that was my, my strongest criticism of those influential feminist books. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. And I'm speaking to Dr. Natalie Jovanovsky about digesting femininities. Are now you call contemporary food culture as pathogenic and use psychological terms to discuss the current culture of food and eating for women. What was your reason behind this? Yeah, so I, I use the term pathogenic to describe contemporary food culture because I think that's precisely what it's become. It's become a bit of a viral sensation. And contemporary food culture has branched into all sorts of different mediums. So we're looking at television cooking shows. We've got an entire channel on free-to-air TV that is a cooking channel. Diet, the diet industry has become mainstream too and there's just constant discussions of food and constant links to women with these discussions. But what we seldom tend to do is look at the way that these narratives or these discourses are gendered and gendered in really problematic ways that reinforce a narrative of body policing in women. So I do believe that these discourses are viral and they're viral in the way that they reproduce two very polarising messages about women in relation to food. And those messages are the promotion of hedonism, so this whole idea that we should be eating exactly what we want and eating more, and yet at the same time also reinforcing the narrative of restriction. So while you're allowed to enjoy this cake, you can only eat so much of it so that you don't go out of control or some sort of some sort of thing. So we only ever tell women that they're allowed to take pleasure in food and eating when we're also telling them not to eat too much of it. And I think that that cultural message is pathogenic. It's gone viral and I think it's affecting lots and lots of young women out there in Western society today. Why are these pathological food narratives so popular? 
Yeah, I think that's a good question. I think that the reason that some of these food narratives are so popular is because they contain some sort of message of resistance in there. And I think that that's why cookbooks are particularly persuasive in this way. It's like they sort of allow women to engage in some sort of backstage talk. So I think Nigella's very good at this, Nigella Lawson, because she'll talk about having to feed her children, but she'll use terms like her little ingrates, for example. And she taps into this language that I think women are not used to having. It's this sort of backstage talk that women don't necessarily show in public. This idea that they're maybe not entirely happy about having to feed their children every night. And also that occasionally they just want to, you know, and in the language of these cookbook writers, occasionally they want to splurge on some naughty food. And I think that, that there's something about these messages that is really palatable to female audiences because it's like it makes their backstage talk visible in a public sense. But, you know, as popular as these narratives are, I think some of the problems that are in there is that they're quite, also quite restrictive to women and prescribe really rigid gender rules and gender norms to food and eating. And I think that's probably something that women aren't entirely aware of when they're reading these texts because these messages aren't as explicit as some of the sort of fun messages that are embedded in these narratives. Seems like the whole food culture has sort of changed because my daughter's very used to eating out, you know, well, at least twice, three times a week. But I was just commenting to her yesterday that you know, when I was a child, we were lucky if we ate out once a year at the local Chinese restaurant. Mm. Yeah. yeah, well, there's something very interesting about this whole idea of eating out and what's acceptable for women to eat when they eat out as well. You know, I've often heard people say things like, well, you know, salads are the most appropriate thing for me to eat when I go out. And I think, where's that coming from? Where's it coming from that women feel that certain types of food are more acceptable than others? Like, I've also heard women make really interesting comments like they'd never order a steak on a first date because they don't want to look greedy. And, yeah, I think these are some really interesting gendered messages that women are taught about their right to eat, their right to eat food, their right to take pleasure in it, and their right to receive nourishment from it as well. Mm, especially, you know, I've been vegetarian for oh, 30 years and when I first became vegetarian, I must say it was it was quite limiting with what I could eat but if I mentioned to someone I was vegetarian, they said, oh, we'll make you a salad. And I don't yeah. like salad and I don't like fruit. So yeah. they just didn't know what to feed me. But I think with the rise of vegetarianism and veganism and especially the amount of eat-out restaurants as well, I think that people are better educated, aren't they, in regards to yeah. non-meat eaters? It's definitely spreading, I think. Uh, you know, it's, and I think sometimes it's spreading in problematic ways as well. Like in my book, in the diet book section, the diet book chapter, I talk about the Skinny Bitch Diet series and that's really a vegan manifesto clothed in a weight loss book um, because their message really at the heart of it is for people to adopt, is for women to adopt a vegan lifestyle 
But unfortunately, the way that they're going about it is that they're using the sexual objectification of women to promote that message. And sometimes I think, well, why can't we promote animal rights and also women's rights in the same narrative? You know, why does one party have to suffer in order to boost the other party's cause? And I think that's a real challenge for women in the 21st century is having these discussions without necessarily putting women down. Yeah, I agree 100% because when the first book came out, Skinny Bitch in the Kitsch, and, uh, of course, I wouldn't have anything to do with it, but my daughter had a read of it in the library, and she said, Mm. look, that's a really good book. Shame about Mm. the title. And I said, yeah, "Yeah, I know. I said I would not support it by buying it because of the title, even though – you know, as she said, it was a really good book. So I think they've lost lost a lot by doing that. But obviously the advertising philosophy behind it was they were trying to make it more attractive for younger people, which which is an awful thing to say. That it seems that younger younger women have lost their politics. Well, they were trying to attract a post-feminist audience. So they, they saw, I think I believe that they realised that there was, negative connotations associated with vegetarianism, almost like there was very clear links between vegetarianism, veganism and feminism. And they felt that they wanted to attract an audience of female consumers that weren't necessarily involved in feminist politics but were more women who like to go... I I believe that one of the quotes that they use is women who like to go shopping and watch Oprah and read uh, gossip magazines. So their promotion of that vegan diet, really they felt they had to couch it in that weight loss way in order to get more females on board. And I I feel that's a real shame. Yeah, it is. So what is the future of feminist discussions of food and eating? Well, I'm hoping that the future of feminist discussions of food and eating involves a continuous challenging of gender. So a continuous challenging of gender norms associated with food and eating. And the way that gender can detrimentally shape our relationships with food. I want women to start asking questions like, is there a way of relating to food that isn't gendered? You know, can we relate to food as a culture without attaching any sort of gendered labels onto it? I acknowledge that my aim is very radical and it's very almost utopian. I've heard people say, well, that's a very utopian vision you have there, a genderless food culture. But I do think it's possible. And I think that in order to make that a reality, we need to start asking some pretty difficult questions. And I think that's precisely the way to do it. So do you have any future study plans within this field? Well, yeah, um, at the moment I'm looking at the way that welfare reforms have impacted single mothers' relationships with food, the study that I'm doing at the moment with Swinburne University. And it's just interesting to see the combination or the interaction of gender and socioeconomic status and also government policies, really sexist government policies as well, and how they can detrimentally shape women's and children's relationships with food and eating.
Oh, that sounds great. Well, thank you very much for coming onto the program today. Thank you very much. And I'm speaking to Dr. Natalie Jovanoski about digesting femininities. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thank you for listening and hope you've been given plenty of food for thought. And do stay tuned for Are You Looking At Me?